The Pre-Paces podcast is brought to you by two brilliant sponsors. Paces Ahead is a fantastic four-day face-to-face paces course run in Brentford, London. They bring you a whole host of patients with fascinating stories and reliable signs, and these patients are absolutely delighted to allow you to hone your exam skills prior to exam day. Some of the patients actually are used in the exams themselves. And the next courses are running from the 20th to the 23rd of May. And then I will be helping out on the course running on the 28th to the 31st of May. Please do come and say hello. I'd love to have a chat and hopefully help you on your way to passing your paces. But if you can't make the course for whatever reason, our other sponsor, Pass Test, has got you covered with their market-leading online revision resource. There are tons of videos which help you revise from the comfort of your own home. And most listeners that I've spoken to have said this is equally essential for your Pacer's success. But that's enough for me for now. Let's get into this week's episode of the Pre-Pacer's Podcast. Welcome back, team, to the Pre-Paces podcast. Dr. Sam here again, and in case you haven't noticed, we haven't actually covered any respiratory stations yet. Apparently, the respiratory doctors have been quite busy over the last few months. Can't imagine why. But anyway, we've managed to strong-arm a respiratory physician onto the show in the shape of Dr. Drew Davis, a respiratory registrar in the Peninsula Deanery, to talk about COPD. Drew was a great laugh to have on and gave a real down-to-earth perspective with loads of great advice you can take into your respiratory stations in future. I also just wanted to give a quick shout-out to my cousin Leo and his fiancée Lily, who recently started a business called Bitter Lemon. Their goal is to get everyone cooking delicious veggie recipes every evening that are easy to make and don't break the bank. If this is the sort of thing that piques your interest, you can find their whole recipe catalogue over at bitterlemonfood.com. But without further ado, let's get into the show. Welcome back, Pace Sitters, to the Pre-Paces podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Sam Williams, and today we are covering a critically important topic in a respiratory station, and that is COPD. Joining us in our quest to conquer this classic respiratory station, we are joined by Dr. Drew Davies. Drew is a respiratory registrar in the Peninsula Deanery and can be found all over the Southwest. So Drew, thank you so much for joining us today. It's a pleasure. And Drew, what are your resounding memories of your time sitting paces? What, what do you remember from that critically important part of, uh, of your training? Um, yeah, so paces is uh, quite a difficult exam, which I don't think I'm the first person or the last person to say that. Um, I think it does test a lot of your personal and professional attributes more so, I think, than actually the kind of knowledge part, which is the bit you kind of fear going into it. So I I ended up having to do it twice. I failed it the first time. And I think the only thing I really changed between the first time I sat it and the second time when I passed it was the mentality going in. I think when you take the written exams, you tend to go in with a very kind of kind of siege mentality of you're going to try and get these marks right and they're going to try and trick you up and if you go into paces with that mentality you're lost you've got to be mr positive you've got to go in basically thinking i am reg 
I'm reg level and I'm going to show what I can do. And I think that's my, that was the big thing I had to change about myself was give sort of basically create that self-confidence that then got me the luck. Cause I think you need a lot of luck to pass paces and got me that bit of luck that actually got me through it. I think it was definitely one of the hardest exams I've ever sat. And I think I learned a lot about myself from it. I think I became a lot more confident clinically from it because I started to think, yeah, actually I can pick stuff up. And ultimately I think I became a better doctor for it. So I think it was a definitely a positive thing in my life. And obviously now you've passed, you're now a practicing respiratory reg in the Peninsula Deanery and you're going to very kindly help us cover this important and very common pace station, which is COPD. So how often do you see and manage these types of patients in your clinical practice? Daily, daily. Um, it's one of the most common things you see in respiratory um, as a specialty. It's one of the most common things you're going to see on the take. Um, and because it's so common and because it's so chronic, it's something which you can say, oh, so-and-so's got really bad COPD. They've got long-term oxygen. Let's get them in, sit them down and go through paces. So I think, you you know, it's 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 something that I, you know, I'll, I'll see and deal with on a regular basis. And it's one of the stations that actually is related to, you know, our work in the long term, which means that it's maybe slightly easier than some of the other things you can maybe get in respiratory, but maybe I'm a bit biased. <laughs> well, I would I would definitely say that it is something which the examiners would expect you to do well on. You know, it's not one of these, you know, Cartaginas or Churg Strausses where, you know, you may not get the actual diagnosis, but, you know, you can pick up some various signs. If you've got a patient in a station one where it's clear they have COPD, the examiners are going to expect you to do well. And that's why I think it's so important that we're going to cover this so comprehensively just to make sure that all the listeners and everyone who's going to be sitting paces in the near future is going to be able to absolutely smash this station. And you're exactly right that this is something which is just so common on the take. So hopefully a lot of we say will not only be relevant in paces, but also relevant in uh, the clinical practice of our listeners. So, Without further ado, let's get into this episode talking about COPD. So Drew, it will be fair to say that COPD is most likely to feature in a station one. Obviously, it can also feature in other stations such as a history taking or a station five, but we are going to focus on an examination station of a patient with COPD. So just a quick recap, a station one is a pure examination station. You're going to have six minutes to perform your examination and then four minutes of presenting the patient and trying to answer the examiner's questions. Although the brief is very short for these station one cases, what is the likely lead in going to be when you see these patients in a station one? I mean, I think the lead-ins have changed over the years. I think they used to be a lot more... Um, I think now it tends to be quite straightforward. It will be, can you please examine this patient with breathlessness or please examine this patient with a chronic cough? And I think that that's what you're more likely to see. It will be something fairly generic. So you're not going to get as many clues from that as maybe in other stations. Yeah, would completely agree because basically it doesn't really give anything away. 
because that would be the case for pretty much any respiratory station because those are the symptoms yeah. of any respiratory disease. So yeah, like you say, you're not going to get much from the brief. So charging straight into our examination. One of the things I really liked that we discussed before arranging this recording was you said, try and nail the diagnosis within the first 30 seconds. Yeah, so paces. I think one of the big myths about paces is that it's an examination of your clinical competence. The way I kind of ended up viewing it is it's a game. A lot of the clinical competence that you have, it's not just having it, it's about being able to display it. And you've only got six minutes to kind of do a full examination. So you kind of have to approach it as a game. You know, all the paces book will give you the top 10 top five top 10 things that you can get in any station when i was like revising for this and this is something i've got from the courses that i went on the idea is when you go in obviously you introduce yourself you act in a professional manner the way you present yourself is massive because that will basically make the examiners think he's going to pass or fail a lot of them will think is this person going to pass or fail in the first minute wash your hands introduce yourself and then step back and say i'm just i'm just going to examine you from the end of the bed and you spend some time with that. And the first things that go through my head are, who is this person? Are they a man? Are they a woman? How old are they? What's their background? Just because, you know, the diagnosis in any station is going to be wildly different if you've got a 21-year-old bloke than if you've got a 70-year-old woman. And I think that in itself starts to prime you of what do you think is most likely? And you go in with the idea of what's the top five presentations in this station. So in respiratory, do they look like they've got fibrosis? Do they look like they've got or had a cancer? Do they look like they've got bronchiectasis? Do they look like they've got COPD? Or can you not see anything at all? In which case you're going to have to go and listen to their chest. Maybe they've got a pleural effusion. That's your top five. So you kind of already think, looking at them, if you've got somebody with COPD, they look like they've got COPD. They'll be older. They'll have cachexia. They will have probably an inhaler next to the bedside, in which case it's almost a foregone conclusion what's going on here. Of course, you might get somebody with alpha one antitrypsin, which are going to be a younger demographic, but on or asthma, which will be a younger demographic. You can also listen to them. You might hear the wheeze. They might be wheezy at the end of the bed. They might have long term oxygen therapy on. So they might have nasal specs on with some oxygen running if they're really bad COPD, these are the things to kind of pick up on. And you can kind of sit, stand at the end of the bed and go, actually, this patient looks like they've got COPD. And then you go with the idea of, I think this patient's got COPD before you've even touched them. And then go and confirm that with your examination. And you shouldn't be thinking, I mean, sometimes you will get into a station where at the end you go, I have no idea what's going on here. So you just present your findings and hope some sort of inspiration is going to come to you. But that's not the ideal. The ideal should be you go in, you know what's wrong with that patient. You go through the examination steps, you show you know what you're doing, and then you give a presentation at the end that you've already practiced and then wait for the, the questions to come at you. When, I, when you go in, that first 20 seconds is really important, not only because you want to get the diagnosis at that point, but you also want to show the examiner that you are professional, that you are calm, that you're not scared by the situation. I think the first time I looked absolutely petrified, it's probably one of the reasons why I didn't pass the first time, because I looked, you just looked at me and went, this guy doesn't know what he's doing because he, he, he stood there and he's shaking and it's terrible. Um, you just want to go in confident, professional, be happy to be there. Be like, this is the best thing ever. Go in, then look at them and think, what do I think based on what I know are the most common stations I'm going to get? What do I think this is? 
And if you don't know, just looking at the end of the bed, then you go in and just try and work out from there. So that that would be how I approach from the end of the bed. And I'd spend 20 seconds doing that. Yeah. So really important there. So you're going to be spending some time looking around the bed. And as Drew said, you'll be looking for inhalers, potentially oxygen tanks, and then the patient themselves. And one of the things which I was taught when I was revising Drew is that in a respiratory station, a good habit to get into, which doesn't actually take that much time, is just to observe the breathing pattern. Are they dyspneic at rest? And specifically in COPD, do they have this pursed lip breathing, which we see in these patients with severe obstructive lung disease? And then the other thing which I was always advised to do is to ask them to take a deep breath in. One of the, And one of the things with COPD especially was a prolonged expiratory phase, which, like you said, before you've even touched the patient, you've already got an idea. Yeah. And I think this brings on to the idea of the blue bloaters and the pink puffers. When you're talking about the purse lift, you're talking about the pink puffers, someone that's quite thin, cachexic, and is struggling to kind of have has that long expiratory phase. Whereas, and then you've got the, the kind of blue bloaters in the sense of somebody that looks very blue and cyanotic. I think you're probably going to see more of the pink puffers in the sense that they're the ones that are going to be the chronic COPD patients they get in. You can see that from the end of the bed. And there are certain things you can do. You also want to be, I mean, not so much for COPD, but you also want to be looking to see which side of the chest is rising. If it's both sides, give you a clue as to whether or not they, you know, they've had a, a pneumonectomy or anything like that. You want to be looking to see if they've got a big chest in COPD, if they've got this kind of barrel chest, if they look a bit hyper expanded, which can be quite tricky to pick up from, from the end of the bed. But you might be something you throw in there if you're confident that this is COPD and it's something that you think you can see. And then also you want to be looking for severity as well, which is, again, quite tricky in COPD because the severity is measured more with numbers and with symptoms than with any signs particularly. But something you can look for is, does the patient look cushionoid from the end of the bed? Do they look like they're on long-term steroids? And again, you can also look to see if they've got peripheral edema from the end of the bed as well, thinking about core pulmonale as another kind of sign of severity that they've got secondary pulmonary hypertension to their COPD. So... You're already not only getting the diagnosis, but you can also somehow, some to a certain degree, assess the severity and add that into your presentation when you come to the end. So hopefully we've given you a lot of tips there before you've even laid a hand on the patient. There are a yeah. lot of things there, which hopefully the listeners can take into their respiratory stations and then proceeding in a systematic manner. Yeah, I mean, I think the other the other thing to say about that moment at the end of the bed is it's not just to go through all that thought process. You can even take a couple of seconds just to gather yourself because you've got to go forward with a confident manner. And going at the end of the bed, and I've always been taught, when you go stand at the end of the bed, stand at the end of the bed with both hands behind your back and project that confidence. And I think that is a really important part of actually the, the whole performance because it is a performance. Every station is a performance. Yeah, couldn't agree with you more, Drew. Mm. Moving on to the hands, the next part of the examination. What sort of things should the listeners be looking out for when they come to examine the hands? So when you come into somebody's hands, the most important thing to do is to not actually pull that patient's hand up to you to say, can you please, can I please have a look at your hands and get the patient to give you their hands? And when you get when you turn their hands over, you can say, please, can you turn your hands over? Don't turn their hands over. You've got to make sure that everything you do is seen to be courteous to the patient and it gets the examiner on your side when you go into the hands what you're looking for in copd is you're looking for tar staining 
Um, to be honest, the main things is going to be things like uh, peripheral cyanosis, tar staining, things like that. If they're clubbed, they can have coexistent diagnosis, but then you start to think, actually, maybe this isn't COPD. Maybe this is something else. You also look to see whether they got a bit of a tremor. Um, so a tremor can be due to a couple of things. Uh, one of them could be the salbutamol. So if they've been having lots of nebs or salbutamol back to back, then they could have a tremor from the salbutamol. Uh, they can also be twitching, which is less of a tremor, more of a twitch from CO2 retention. But to be honest, unless they've literally just pulled this guy from the ward, which I've seen happen in some paces situations, they can just hook somebody off the ward. Um, you're very unlikely to get somebody who's actually in CO2 retention. Uh, but it's something else to think about when you're looking at the hands. Then you'll go up to the wrist, you feel the pulse, feel for a bounding pulse, thinking about CO2 retention again. And then you look for a flap. So you get them to put the hands out, look for the flap. Just it, And it's like, you know, just ask them, can you please put your hands out like you're trying to stop traffic and don't pull their arm into that position, get them to make that position and then go on to the face from there. Face-wise, you're looking for central cyanosis, look in the eyes, look in the mouth, and then maybe have a little look at the JVP, thinking about uh, right heart failure, secondary to core pulmonale. Uh, and then that's the point where you would then get them repositioned. I mean, I, th I, th I think we missed it a little bit at the start, but you've you got to have them in the right position, 45 degree angle, top off, bare, um, bare above the waist. But with the idea that you've got them covered and then uncover them for the examination and cover them back up again. Perfect. And what I was always taught was that when you examined for lymphadenopathy, it was always best to sit them forward so you can feel right around yeah. the right around the back. So what I would do is what I used to try and do, because I think it's really difficult to forget lymphadenopathy, but it's so important. What I would often do is get them to sit forward, examine them for lymphadenopathy, and then do the back and do the back first and the front second. And the reason I might do that is because you've got a slightly more higher yield of examination findings from the back than the front. So if you're somebody that tends to run out of time, that can sometimes be better to go back than front. Um, I think the other problem is, is that sometimes you can forget the bit on the front that you need to do in the neck, which is the tracheal deviation. And so my strategy always used to be head, tongue, trachea, examine the front, then examine the back, then do lymphadenopathy, then look at the, the, the kind of the feet and then finish. And I would just practice that. So whatever you do, don't change it, have your system, practice it in the way that you know that you just go, it becomes automatic. You go boom to boom to boom to boom. And you don't want to be thinking about doing that examination. You just want to, and, and don't let anybody change it once you've decided what you're going to do unless it's something that's really critical, have your way of doing it. They might say my personal preference is that you go the front before the back or someone else might say, do the back before the front because you might learn out of time. If you've got your system, just do that. The real meat of the sandwich, the place where you're going to get the majority of your points is going to be in the chest. So again, like Drew says, all of these processes should be automatic. You should just be progressing through them as quick as you can whilst taking in the signs in order to get to the <clears> chest <throat> where you can get the majority of the signs and cement the diagnosis in your mind. So, Drew, if we move on to the chest, 
obviously there's a process that we go through when we examine someone's chest and usually we start with inspection yeah now inspection is often something that people go oh yeah no i looked at the chest it's done that is actually probably one of the most important bits of examining the chest so one of the most common paces cases that are going to come up is uh lobectomy pneumonectomy right and if you miss the scar you have lost that station so you need to make sure that you are inspecting the chest properly so don't just look at the chest look around the chest get the patient to bring they bring their arm up have a look underneath their arm have a look into their axillas and really have a good look to make sure you haven't missed those scars with copd there's not a lot you're going to see on the chest apart from the barrel shape so you're looking for hyper expansion essentially then palpation again palpation is something that's done really poorly uh generally in respiratory exams you want to be palpating uh for chest expansion again not so uh, important in COPD, but you want to make sure that when you're palpating, you're got your arms tucked in when you and bring your hands from the sides around to get your thumbs to meet in the middle, then get the patient to bring a deep breath in and out. It's quite difficult to kind of describe over a kind of a podcast situation like this, it's something you kind of have to show people, but get try and get someone to show you, show you how to properly get um, to examine chest expansion because it's, I think it's something that is generally done poorly. I would just say I, I completely agree with that. And part of it, I think, is people not wanting to be too rough with the patients, but it does still mean you have to correctly examine them. And I think what people tend to do is just lay their hands on the patient rather than what they need to do is wrap their hands around yeah. the side of the patient. So with chest expansion, you want to be making sure it's not how you're holding the patient because your hands are still only resting on the patient. It's how you are actually positioning yourself and getting your hands in so that you are measuring that chest expansion. The other thing with palpation is you, again, look, thinking about pulmonary hypertension, you want to look to see if there's a right ventricular heave. You want to feel if there's a palpable second heart sound and then go on to percussion. Again, percussion, I think at the medical student level is something that's done very poorly. Um, I think once you get to SHO level, people can still have poor technique you want to be making sure you're not deadening that sound. So when you are percussing, you're not leaving your finger on that finger. You often see people percuss and leave their finger on their finger. I don't know whether this is explained very well. It's again, something I have to show people normally, um, but it deadens the sound. You want to make sure you remove your finger after percussing and you want to make sure that when you are percussing, you're percussing between ribs, not over a rib, giving your hand a, a wide kind of diaphragm on which to get that that kind of sound out and you don't want to be percussing too much so you want to just do two one or two taps per space listen show your listening again it's something that can make you look very amateurish if you do it wrong and it's all about that performance again so you want to be just going tap tap in that area tap tap in that area going you know upper mid lower and axilla areas at the front uh, and then again at the back off and when you go and examine the back later so it's again something that you can look amateurish even though maybe what you're doing is perfectly fine but again you want to show the examiners you know what you're doing so working on your percussion technique making sure that you have a good percussive note coming out of that uh, as you go around the chest is always looks good as well percussion wise it's an opportunity to look professional 
I don't think you're going to pick much up from it in COPD. I'm not confident that I can hear hyper-resonant to resonant. And I think that it's, again, something where people will go, what do you mean by hyper-resonant? And then you can tie yourself in knots. But it is one of the things that they talk about in the books, so that's fine. And I didn't get COPD in my paces, so I don't know. And then probably the most important part of examining the chest is going to be auscultations. So what can the listeners expect to find during this part of the examination? The uh, listeners can expect to hear a polyphonic wheeze. Uh, And that's essentially going to clinch your diagnosis. Um, You're going to hear a polyphonic wheeze. And then once you've done that on the front, I would then go to the back. I'd feel for lymphadenopathy, which is a low yield thing, but you show that you're going to do it. Check the lymph nodes. Then you check the ankles looking for peripheral edema, which you've already done from the end of the bed anyway. You thank the patient. You make sure that they're comfortable. You make sure that they've got their jacket or whatever on. It always looks nice if you help someone on with their top or something. It soaks up a bit of time. Um, the examiner will stop you once the time's up anyway. And then it goes to the presentation. Yeah. And then a couple of things which I would just add in there, which are things mm. which if you have time, you could do. One of the, So we talked about auscultating the lung fields. Listening to heart sounds, I would say, is not an essential part of a respiratory examination. But in a scenario like this, where you think there are potentially cardiac or there is potentially cardiac involvement in the way of pulmonary hypertension. One of the signs you can find is a loud second heart sound. And mm-hmm. just a, just a quick listen to the heart sounds can just add a bit more to your confidence than that, that that is actually associated. So if you have time at the end, listening to heart sounds wouldn't be a bad idea. I mean, again, I, f- I think P2 heart sound is quite a difficult thing to pick up on. Whereas when you palpate the chest, you can definitely feel P2 in pulmonary hypertension patients. And I think also if somebody's got really bad uh, pulmonary hypertension, they've probably got tricuspid with regurge. Maybe listening for that might be more high yield as well. Yeah. And with, with tricuspid with regurge, again, you might want to sort of feel for pulsatile uh, hepatomegaly as well. The other thing. Yeah, absolutely agree with that. So, We're going to take a very short break, but when we come back, we're going to be covering a presentation, the differential diagnosis, and then covering the investigations, management, and common examiner questions. This episode of the podcast is sponsored by PassTest.com. Over at PassTest.com, they have exemplar video scenarios of exactly how you should examine a patient with COPD, including a series of examiner questions that you could get asked if it comes up for your exam. So to get access, after listening to this episode of the podcast, simply head over to PassTest.com slash paces. That's P-A-S-T-E-S-T dot com slash paces. Welcome back to the Pre-Paces podcast. Dr. Sam Williams here with Dr. Drew Davies, respiratory registrar in the Peninsula Deanery. And we have so far discussed how you should approach the examination station of a patient with possible COPD. And now we're going to move on to the following four minutes after you finish your examination, moving into the presentation, talking about the differential diagnosis and the investigations and management. So Drew, when we come to present our patient back to the examiners, what sort of approach should we be taking? So don't be afraid to take a pause, collect yourself, collect your thoughts. I think 
one of the things you can kind of mess up again in this performance that we're creating for the examiner is you can rush yourself into your presentation. You don't want to do that. I think that's something I definitely did when I failed it the first time is I, I rushed into a presentation um, and that looks nervous. Then they smell blood. Then they come in for the kill. So you don't <laughs> want to do that. <laughs> you don't want to do that. Uh, what you want to do, collect yourself. You already know what you're going to say because you've presented. What the other thing I did is I actually practice presentation, so I know that the top five things might come up. So I practice presenting those top five things. The signs are always going to be the same. You're always going to pick up these things. So with the presentation, you can look slick and look professional if you if you've already practiced that presentation. With COPD. It's a little bit more tricky because you're not going to say, I think this patient's got COPD at the start. You're probably going to go with, um, you've asked me to examine this 55-year-old gentleman who appears cachexic. He has uh, nicotine staining of his fingers and, a, a, and the subusable inhaler by his bedside. He's got a widespread polyphonic wheeze and his chest appears hyperexpanded. I believe he's probably got uh, a, a lung disease such as COPD or asthma. My investigations I would perform would be, and then you go into investigations. So you try and keep it as simple as possible. You don't want to get yourself caught up in some knots. There's loads of little kind of heffalump traps that you can get involved with with the presentation. The, the, they make the examiners ask you questions about that as opposed to what they've got on their card, which is probably an easier question. So, for example, when I just said there's no signs of pulmonary hypertension, then they're going to say, what are the signs of pulmonary hypertension? And then you've got to go into the signs of pulmonary hypertension. And then maybe it's not what they think the signs of pulmonary hypertension is. And you can get into an argument. You don't want to make that. So you don't want to draw yourself into stuff like that. I would, I would definitely agree with that. And one way that you could get around, get around that is by mm. saying, I couldn't detect any clinical signs of pulmonary hypertension due to there being uh, no raised JVP, no loud second heart sound, and no pedal edema. You know, it's that sort of adding. Yeah, and that's a, yeah, and it's it's that kind of you know the the kind of pertinent negative things to show that you're looking at severity and showing that you know that pulmonary hypertension is a severe uh, sort of sign of severe COPD. You know, that's that's quite a nice thing to put in to show. So whenever you say something in your presentation, you want it to say something. So why am I saying that as a negative sign? Well, I'm saying that as a negative sign because I want to show I know what severe COPD looks like. And it will be somebody with pulmonary hypertension, right heart failure. And then in terms of differential diagnoses, you're sort of limited, really. Once if you hear the classic polyphonic wheeze, there's not really that much in the way of differential diagnosis, but there are a couple, <clears throat> aren't there? Yeah. So I think if you've got somebody, you, you always go with what you think is the most common. If you've got somebody with tar staining, um, packet of fags next to their bed and they're quite elderly, you're going to go, I think this is COPD. However, it may well be asthma, which is the big one. Um, Churg Strauss, which is obviously a synophilic version of asthma. Again, you'd be thinking of somebody, middle-aged woman, you'd be thinking more with Churg Strauss. And alpha-1 antitrypsin, again, you're thinking of someone a little bit younger in their 40s, 50s. Not necessarily, because obviously it's, it's, you know, it's not as horrific as it maybe once was. But again, you, you're thinking somebody that maybe hasn't got nicotine staining or something like that. But these are the things you give as a differential. Perfect. And then, as we've discussed before on the podcast, you should really drive straight from your presentation and differential diagnosis 
to talk about the way that you would investigate these patients and then go on to the management. So if we go into the investigations, how should we be starting things off? So investigations is all about showing that you are a safe pair of hands. That is what you are showing. So what they want to see from you as a candidate at PACES is that you will be a safe pair of hands as a registrar. So when you say the investigations and the differential to a certain degree, but not so much in this, but the investigation should be along the lines of showing, you know, you know what you would want to be doing with this patient in a clinic environment. So I would say I want to get some blood tests, sputum cultures. Um, I'd want lung function tests, an ABG, a chest X-ray, and possibly other chest imaging, such as CTs, depending on the results of the, of the former. And you might even want to throw in, I want reversibility testing. And you may also throw in, I'm not sure about asthma, so I'd want to have spirometry over a period of time. Uh, to see if there's any di diurnal variation, which would get you even extra marks. Because um, that's obviously one of the ways that you would differentiate CPD from asthma. So reversibility and peak flow measurements at morning and nighttime. So there tends to be a bit of a, uh, there'll be a, a difference if you've got asthma. That's what you'd be saying. And you, and you would, I would incorporate, like I said, with the presentation is I think this patient's got CPD. My differential will be this, this and this. I would like to get this, this and this. And you always start with the simple things and then go to the slightly more tricky things. And you always think of yourself in the perfect situation. So never think of yourself as being in, in your real job where if you wanted to get a CT scan, you're going to wait a week or whatever. Or if you wanted to get an ABG, you're going to have to do it yourself or you're going to, you know, no, you're in a perfect situation. Think of yourself in a perfect hospital. You're going to ask these things. These things will be done. All you want to do, you don't want to be too clever. You just want to show that you're safe and you're competent and you can do that. Great. So let's say the examiners choose to be particularly difficult and they say, okay, you want to take some blood tests. What blood tests do you want to take? So um, I would say you want to be focusing on a full blood count, looking for anemia. Um, you want to be looking for eosinophils and eosinophilia, which is really important in differentiating between an asthma and a COPD or an asthma with COPD um, crossover the other reason why cinephils are quite important in copd is that the guidelines now are changing more to be looking at cinephilia over time and if you've got somebody that's got a cinephilia over time then you would be thinking about putting them on a steroid inhaler as opposed to a labalama which we'll talk about when we come to management i'd also ask for a vasculitic screen thinking about Cherg strauss if i was thinking about Cherg strauss and maybe an IgE level, an IgE to RAST, to Aspergillus and cats or dog dander uh, or specific antigens within the patient's history, if I was thinking about asthma as well. Uh, so those would be the sort of blood tests I'd be thinking of. Yeah. And just one thing to add in there is that with the full blood count, obviously anemia is something we, that we very frequently say is a, is a reason that we would look at the full blood count, but also in COPD, one of the things that I'm sure you you might find mm. in, in this population, Drew, is secondary polycythemia. Yeah. So if the HB is high and whether that's, uh, you know, a sign of chronic hypoxia and sign of severity as well. And then I guess the last thing, which would only be the case if the person in front of you fit the fit the bill for it, as you described earlier, would be alpha one antitrypsin levels. If this yeah. is someone who's in young or middle age displaying these sorts of signs. So you very briefly touched on imaging in that last bit. And chest X-ray obviously is something we do for every patient who comes into hospital. 
But when we talk about CT scans, let's say the examiner again is trying to be difficult and they say, okay, so what signs would you be looking for if you do it? If you did a CT scan of this person's chest, what would you be looking for to confirm your suspected diagnosis of COPD? Uh, So you'd be looking for emphysema, which would be the pathological diagnosis for COPD. Um, You'd also be looking to see the extent of the emphysema and whether there's any bulla or bullous lung disease, which might think make you think about surgical treatments. Perfect. And then the next thing that you mentioned as well is also about uh, formal lung function and spirometry. And this is, I think, just a real, it will be such a gimme for an examiner to um, ask. Um, so what sort of things should you be saying you'd be looking for on the lung function test? So you'd be looking for an obstructive pattern disease with little reversibility on uh, subusmal challenge. And then if they're asking you for numbers, I mean, I keep it very simple to that. Then if they ask you for numbers, no, it's 0.7 is the ratio. So the FEV1 to FEC ratio less than 0.7, FEV1 less than 80%. And then having your head, because they're going to, if they're going to start asking about numbers, they're going to ask you about severity. And you want to know that, you know, you've got your your severe uh, at sort of less than 30, 30 to 50, moderate, 50 to uh, 80 mild. So you want to make sure you've got those numbers in your head that you can just sort of rattle them off. I wouldn't worry too much about the lung capacity, but if they ask you specifically, there'll be an increased lung capacity. There'll be an increased functional vital capacity. There'll be increased residual volume because of the bullous disease and there'll be a reduced diffusion capacity. Great. And then one last test, which I guess is only touched on if relevant, but if you suspect that there's pulmonary hypertension, then an echo might be helpful just to try and prove and quantify that. Yeah. Um, And that would be the first screening test for pulmonary hypertension. If they're going to start getting you into pulmonary hypertension, though, I think they'd be pretty mean because pulmonary hypertension in itself is a a whole separate thing. And if you think it's due to COPD, a lot of the tests you would do to diagnose pulmonary hypertension, you probably wouldn't be doing in that patient. And following the investigations, you're probably going to be asked, how are you going to manage this patient if they presented acutely to hospital? And there's sort of two avenues we could go down here, one of which would be the um, acute exacerbation of a patient with COPD and then the long term chronic management of these patients. So if we start off by talking about an acute exacerbation of COPD, you know, this is one of the things which is one of the most common things comes in on multiple occasions, probably every day on the medical take. So what sorts of things should we be doing for a patient who's presented with an acute exacerbation of COPD? So it's the simple things, really. And this is, this is again, another opportunity to show that you're a safe pair of hands. So you want to keep it simple and keep it direct and go from the first thing you do to the last thing you do. So the first thing you do is give them salbutamol nebs, give them ipotropium nebs, give them steroids. So steroids and NEBS is the most important thing. You then probably want to get an ABG to see if they're in type 2 respiratory failure or have a high uh, bicarb, which would indicate that they're a chronic retainer of CO2, in which case you might adjust the oxygen therapy to 88 to 92. Otherwise, it'd be 94 to 98. And that's really important to know that not everybody with COPD is going to have reduced oxygen saturations, although that's an ongoing discussion at the moment which we might end up changing our position on but then if it gets worse you want to be saying that i would then be escalating them to high level care if appropriate 
or something along those lines again to show you're a safe pair of hands and make it more of a real world sort of thing and then you like say well then i consider things such as iv aminophilin infusions if they are in type 2 respiratory failure despite maximal treatment then i might consider non-invasive ventilation Perfect. And one of the things which I think is important to add in, but not essential for every case, is that not every presentation of an exacerbation of COPD is necessarily an infection. No. Uh, So lots of things can trigger off an exacerbation of COPD. There's also um, sort of psychosocial elements to COPD as well that can interplay but you can just have a situation where your CPD is just ten- is just a little bit worse than it normally is and you need some steroids to get over that. So yeah, if there is an infection, you obviously treat the infection. Yeah. Um, and obviously that means antibiotics in case the listeners hadn't, hadn't got that from what we were trying to do. Yeah, yeah that's, that's our traditional treatment for <laughs> infections, I've heard. Yeah, this newfangled nonsense. Anyway, yeah. so you, you ended there speaking about non-invasive ventilation. So- you know, we, we have listeners from various different backgrounds, various different stages of training. So for, for maybe those uh, guys who aren't familiar, what exactly is non-invasive ventilation? What do we mean when we talk about it? And, and what are the reasons that we might start someone on non-invasive ventilation? So non-invasive ventilation is a machine that provides positive airway pressure, uh, inspiration and expiration called IPAP and EPAP. Uh, what it's essentially doing is it's improving ventilation by uh, providing uh, inspiratory pressure and expiratory pressure that open and close the alveoli and help them to actually uh, ventilate. So it will improve ventilation and therefore should reduce uh, CO2, improve oxygenation um, and help splint open the airways that are um, uh, obstructed. So, and that's what, that's why it works so well in COPD. You use it if somebody has got respiratory acidosis despite treatment. So if somebody rocks up to A&E and respiratory acidosis, you don't just put them on the NIV machine. You give them the NEBS, you give them the PRED, you wait an hour, you see if they're getting better. If they're not getting better and they're getting worse, you stick them on the machine. The thing is, is that to be on the machine, you need to be awake, you need to be aware, you need to be alert, you need to know what you're doing to somebody. It's almost like um, the boxing referee, you kind of get them, you sort of say, can you do you understand what this is? Do you know what's happening? Yeah, okay, let's go with it then. They need to be able to do that. They can't have any fractures or anything that's going to mean that the mask, because the mask is, a depending on what trust you're in, you're either going to have a full face mask or you're going to have a mask that's over the mouth and the nose. Um, but it's going to be something that's going to be quite tight uh, over the mouth. You've got to be able to um, uh, be able to tolerate that. So that's really the the contraindications is whether or not somebody uh, is able to tolerate that mask or has had recent surgery or fractures to their face or to their esophagus because it's going to blow air into your tummy as well. Or if they've got any airway burns, it's going to be a problem or they're going to aspirate. These are the sort of things that means that somebody can't have the mask. But uh, as long as that's the case, it should be fine. Pneumothorax is the other thing you're obviously got to worry about because you're going to be forcing air into the lungs. And if there's a leak from the lung to the lining of the lung, you're going to make the pneumothorax worse. Something I've seen, which can be very tricky. But to be fair, if that does happen, we stick a chest strain in and keep the to keep it going and send them to ICU. So that's what that's what happened the last time that happened. But um, yeah, essentially, 
that's what you and in an exam situation you don't want to be going into that level of detail you just basically want to be saying this is a non-invasive ventilation it ventilates the alveoli and helps remove co2 perfect so just to summarize that last little section so managing an acute exacerbation you're going to be giving them bronchodilator nebulizers oral steroids most likely prednisolone antibiotics if there are clinical signs of pneumonia or evidence of infection on imaging controlled oxygen therapy titrated to whether or not they are a co2 retainer and then appropriate escalations of care whether that's up to non-invasive ventilation or if they are suitable potentially invasive ventilation in a high dependency or itu environment so then if we change tack very slightly and we go on to the long-term management of these patients, so, you know, they get over their acute exacerbation, they're discharged from hospital, and then they have a follow-up appointment with either yourself, Drew, or one of the consultants in respiratory medicine. When we talk about the long-term management of COPD, this is just something which the examiners could ask the uh, listeners about. So when we think about the long-term management, what, what sort of things should the listeners be thinking about? So I think you should split this into things that change disease uh, progression and things that actually help symptomatically. And the three treatments that change disease um, progression are stop smoking, pulmonary rehabilitation and vaccinations. So your flu and your pneumococcal and those have been shown to actually improve outcomes. Then you've got things that improve symptoms, which are going to be your inhalers which you don't want to get bogged down with too much, but essentially you can simplify into if they are pure COPD with no eosinophils, lava lama. If they've got eosinophilia or are having multiple chest infections, maybe think about a lava ICS. And then if they're progressing, despite that, stick them on a triple inhaler. And it's actually probably a little bit more simpler than it was when I took paces. They've kind of changed it around now and it makes a bit more sense in my, in my, my kind of feeling. But essentially, most people with COPD will go on to a labalama. One of the things which uh, we mentioned very briefly in the examination was the potential of seeing the patient who's on long-term oxygen. Now, if you're getting into these sorts of questions, chances are you're probably doing really well and the examiner's now just picking you off for sport. But in terms of criteria that patients meet in order to be eligible for long-term oxygen, what sort of things should the listeners be mentioning? So you should be having an ABG. You should be having an ABG where your PO2 is less than eight. Those some sensors will be 7.3. And normally you want to have a couple of ABGs a little bit wider apart. Obviously, at the moment, everyone and anyone's getting long term oxygen therapy um, in the COVID environment. But uh, so everything's kind of been a little bit. But that's essentially what we should be using as our, our kind of criteria having a high co2 doesn't exclude you from having uh, long-term oxygen therapy what will normally happen is you'll have lower oxygen target sats um and then if you are still in type 2 respiratory failure what sometimes happens is they'll come into hospital and then we'll stick them on bipap and they'll send them home with bipap nice and one of the things which is just sort of goes without saying in these patients is that they should have stopped smoking or at least at that point be a non-smoker yeah, so unfortunately, smoking requires fire, and fire and oxygen makes boom. <laughs> <laughs> and it happens. It happens. Happens on a <laughs> monthly basis. I've had conversations with the long-term oxygen therapy people. No, we cannot give your patient long-term oxygen therapy. They smoke. No, I don't believe that they said they stopped smoking. They keep smoking. 
And then the last part of management, which is quite advanced, and to be honest, I have very little experience of this, is surgical management of COPD. So what sort of options are available? So lung reduction therapy has been shown to be very beneficial for people with COPD. Essentially, what you're doing is you're cutting out the bit of lung that's got lots of bulla and dead space in it um, and allowing the rest of the lung to re-expand that's got working lung. So uh, it tends to be upper lobes that we take out. Um, you need to fit a certain criteria for um, belectomy and lung reduction surgery. Um, you get sent up to a specialist center. They do a special scan which shows the fissure integrity between your lungs to see which whether you can actually take out a bit of lung. Because if the fissure integrity is not very good, then you'll just get a pneumothorax and it will go wrong. I think the most important thing really is, is you probably don't need to know the specific criteria, but just know that that's a potential option in future. The obviously the the final step, and this tends to be more with people with alpha one antitrypsin as opposed to COPD, but it can be people with COPD is lung transplants. Um, if you're young and fit enough, and again, you have to be fairly fit to take a lung transplant. So a lot of the patients with COPD that get that bad aren't fit enough for it, but occasionally you will get somebody who is fit enough to have a lung transplant, and that would be the the final kind of surgical management. Perfect. So that pretty much wraps up our comprehensive review of a patient with COPD. But that's not the end of the podcast because the final feature is the return of our feature made purely for registrars, and that is Reg Against the Machine. The best podcast feature that's ever been seen is Reg Against the Machine. Welcome to only the second appearance of our feature, Reg Against the Machine. That's right, my foolish director of medical education has spaffed my study budget on a machine which generates quizzes for our registrar guests. Unfortunately, we can't guarantee it's something they'll know anything about, but if there's anything to prove your capabilities as a med reg to be able to deal with the unexpected, it's being able to give reasonable answers to a quiz which has only been cobbled together about half an hour before this podcast recording. So Drew, how are you feeling? Are there any areas of quizzing which you'd really love to come up? And is there anything which you would absolutely hate to come up? I'm, I'm still reeling for the fact that this is what my budget's been spent on. I, I, I feel like we, you know, we should have had a, a better machine. But anyway, uh, quiz wise, anything from the last 10 to 20 years, probably. <laughs> any, anything whatsoever. <laughs> yeah, if no more than 20 years old, I'll probably be all right. Okay, well, I can't guarantee that, but what I can guarantee is the prize we are willing to offer you. And that grand prize is one extra day of study leave. And should you get 100% on this quiz, all you'll have to do to claim it is to pick up and fill in a form from the education centre where you work, fill half it in in pen, then scan it, fill in the rest on Microsoft Paint, then send it via email to your educational supervisor secretary who's on leave until June before being asked to speak to payroll who will only get back to you by the time you've left the trust. So let's see what the machine has in store for you. So the machine has spat out a topic for you, Drew, and it's a quiz called He's Got Drew Davis Eyes. You'll be facing 10 quickfire questions on eyes. But don't worry, there's no ophthalmology or fundoscopy involved. I'm not some sort of sick monster. No, instead, you'll be answering questions on anything to do with eyes. It could be in films, TV, music, books, literature, or the natural world. Okay, this is how we play. 10 quickfire questions. 
If you answer without the multiple choice options, we'll give you two points. But if you're struggling, you can take the multiple choice options, in which case you will be awarded with one point. Right. So these are 10 questions on eyes. Are you ready? Yes. Question number one. What type of view are you described as having if you have a high vantage point over an area? A bird's eye view. Correct. Bird's eye view. And he's on the board for two points. Question number two. Which fruit is described in a phrase referring to something or someone that one cherishes above all others? The apple of one's eye. Correct again for two points. Question number three. Which bird are you compared to metaphorically if you can easily spot important details or notice very small mistakes? He's got a deep, um, deep thinking face on here. Go on the deep thought, you see. Oh, you can take the multiple, the multiple choices. Yeah, you, go on after multiple choices, because I, okay. I want to keep the show going. Because as soon as it comes up, I'll be like, oh, yeah, it's that. <laughs> okay. Are you compared to a kestrel, a falcon, an eagle, or an oh, owl? Oh, eagle. Eagle, yeah, eagle-eyed. Eagle-eyed is correct. I even had the action man. <laughs> the, the eyes that go sideways, the eagle-eyed action man. It's great. <laughs> Okay, question number four. In the famous Van Morrison song, what colour eyes does the girl have that gets his heart a racing and a thumping? I'm not singing it, but it's Brown Eyed Girl. That's a real shame. <laughs> I'm sure the listeners would want to hear it, Drew. I'm tone deaf. <laughs> question number five. Which 1999 film directed by Stanley Kubrick stars Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman where Cruise becomes curiously embroiled in a bizarre sexual ritual. Eyes wide shut. Correct. For two points. That was quite a tricky one. But well done. Uh, That's a, another two points. It's, it's not the sort of film that you forget. <laughs> <laughs> True enough. Right. This is question number six. Which part of the eye gives its name to a song by the Goo Goo Dolls which features the lyrics and I don't want the world to see me because I don't think that they'd understand. The who? <laughs> the Goo Goo Dolls. The Goo Goo Dolls. Okay, give me the give me the multiple choice things. Okay, so it's which part of the eye gives its name to a song by the Goo Goo Dolls? Yeah. And the options are A, lens, B, iris, C, cornea, or D, retina. I mean, it makes sense for it to be lens, wouldn't it? It's not. It's, it's Iris. Not. It's Iris. Okay, question number seven. Which 1987 romance film starring Patrick Swayze and Jennifer Grey made the song Hungry Eyes iconic? I mean, it could be any of them, couldn't it? It could, it could easily be Officer and Gentleman. It could easily be uh, the other one, the, what's it, Footloose. It's He's an in all of them, isn't he? It's an, icon- <laughs> it's an iconic romance film. I mean, those are both iconic romance films, aren't they? And he's in both of them, I'm pretty sure. Unless it was Tom Cruise in Officer and Gentleman, I can't remember. Let's go Footloose. Oh, it's not Footloose. But I would say Footloose was one of the multiple choice options, which are now gone. Yeah. It's Dirty Dancing. Question number eight. Survivor famously sang the iconic movie track, which featured in the film Rocky. 
But what's the name of the song? Eye of the Tiger. That's correct for two points. Yeah. Question number nine. Which animal has the largest eyes of any animal on Earth? It's got to be a whale, isn't it? Well, do you want the multiple choice options? No, because the whale will be one of them. So I might <laughs> as well just go with whale. Because when the multiple choice comes up and it says whale, I'll go, that's whale. So I'm either right or I'm completely wrong. And it's like, I don't know, a giraffe or something. <laughs> well, it, anyway, when you say largest eye, do you mean largest eye in diameter? Are we talking about largest eye in proportion to their body? No, it's just ab- it's absolute eye size. Well, it's got to be a whale because it's the biggest animal. Okay, well, it's not whale, but you were right in the sense that there were two whales in the multiple choice options, so you wouldn't have got it anyway. It's the oh, do col- I have to say, do I have to say a specific whale? Yeah, but it's neither whale, so it doesn't matter. Oh, okay, fine. <laughs> <laughs> it's the colossal squid, apparently. Is that an eye, though? I suppose it is, isn't it? Yeah. Okay, it's a, fair enough. It's a huge eye. Uh, question number 10. In darts, how many points do you score with a bullseye? Uh, 50. It is 50, and that gives you a final score. It's unlucky for some, 13 points for Dr. Drew Davies. And what did the what did the other registrar get? Uh, I can't remember. Something like 19, oh, I think. You've got, to have a, you've got to have a scoreboard. 19? Yeah, Terrible. it was. But his okay. was his were pretty easy in comparison, I think. Anyway. Are you just saying this? You're just saying this to me now, just because I don't know who the Goo Goo Dolls are. <laughs> Obviously showing my age. So that brings us to the end of this episode of the Pre-Paces podcast. Dr. Drew Davies, respiratory registrar, is bowing out of Reg Against the Machine with a perfectly respectable score. And Drew, we <laughs> are hugely indebted to you for giving up your time to speak to us today. We really appreciate you swinging by giving us your expertise on approaching a patient with COPD. So thank you so much. No, my pleasure. Thanks. So guys, thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Pre-Paces podcast. We really hope that has come in handy in your pace revision. Don't forget, we're always open to having suggested topics for future episodes so we can bring you the exact type of content you want us to cover. So if you want to get in touch, have any other points, questions, concerns, worries, or anything else you've heard in this episode or to do with paces in general, you can get in touch with the show on Twitter. It's at prepacespodcast or on email. It's prepacespodcast at gmail.com. Don't forget to like and follow us on social media or subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. We really hope you've enjoyed it and we will see you next time on the Pre-Paces podcast.